0: May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. Let me paint like a picture of you, for you. Isaiah Isaiah is struck by a vision of the heavenly throne, and on it he sees Hashem, but all he can seem to see are the fringes, the seat, if you will, of his robe as they flow down, cascading into all of heaven. Now instead of actually seeing Hashem himself, this vision gives one the impression that the actual sight of God is just too holy to be seen. He instead sees a number of seraphim, which are very powerful guardians of God's throne in heaven. Each of these guardian angels have three pairs of wings. With one pair, they cover their feet. With one pair... They cover their face as if to suggest that one could simply not bear to look upon the face of God because it's just too holy. With the other two wings, they're flying around. And instead of describing an image of the Eternal One, as all images are beyond description, they qualify him by saying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When we say this prayer as a part of the Amidah, we're proclaiming with these seraphim that the glory of the God of heaven and earth. Let's say that together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The payroll manager... At your work, who stiffed you out of a vacation day. His office is full of his glory. The palace of Kim Jong-il, the North Korean dictator, whether he realizes it or not. His palace is full of his glory. This sanctuary here at Tikvot this morning is full of his glory. Amen. As Jews and Gentile believers, we're called to a life, a life of 24 hours a day, seven days a week of living our lives in a way that acknowledges that the whole earth is full of his glory. That's the beauty of Judaism. Everything that we do, every blessing that we make is an acknowledgement that the glory of God is absolutely everywhere. This morning I'd like to talk about some of the familiar ways that we observe within the synagogue, that we acknowledge the glory of God. In other words, why do we do what we do here at Tikvot? What are some of these traditions that are so prevalent in Judaism? Are we just following the traditions of men, as I've been accused of many times by people who didn't understand? Certainly covering the ins and outs of everything that we do here could never happen in one sermon. It couldn't happen in months and months and months worth of sermons. But we are going to start with some basics, so let's jump right in. I went to college in the late 80s and early 90s, and there were a lot of different student groups who almost as a battle cry asserted the belief that the God of Israel was chauvinistic and sexist. And moreover, Rav Shaul in the New Testament expressed his disdain for women by certain expressions meant to keep them under the status of men. One that was famous, favorably cited seemed to be was when, when Rav Shaul in his writings admonished women to cover their heads when they came into the synagogue. Okay, now, brothers and sisters, that's not the purpose, that is not even almost the purpose of this sermon. I'm not trying to admonish anyone to do anything. I'm just using this as an example. Plus, as a 47-year-old middle-aged man, I'm still quite agile and I can dodge tomatoes. (laughs) Just using it as an example. Now, to these groups, this one passage was just a proof text that God was chauvinistic and a bigot. Rav Shaul was trying to keep women in a subservient place by dare, suggesting that they cover their heads in synagogue. But, you know, I myself, being familiar with the liturgy, being familiar with synagogue, this frustrated me to no end. I was like, no, 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 no. The fact that Rav Shaul even wrote this told you something very, very clear about that society. At least women had the choice. Women had the choice if they wanted to cover their heads or not. Can you imagine a man at that time going into a synagogue without his head covered? A man wouldn't be caught dead in a synagogue at that time without his head covered, with a knit cap and a tallit. Everybody look at uh, David Farouz's cap, okay? It probably at that time took that shape. Okay? Over time, observant Jewish men, well, well, actually at this time, rather, let me back up a little bit. At this time of Yeshua, in second temple times, not only did men have their heads covered with some kind of knit cap like that, but they had them covered with a tallit. A tallit, in Judea, in Israel, it was common dress for men. If they weren't working, They had a tallit on everywhere they went. And you see smatterings of this in the Brit HaKadasha. For instance, there's the famous story of when Yeshua healed a woman with the issue of blood. And all she did, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. There's no word in Greek for him. And a lot of scholars are pretty much decided that she was referring to the tzitzit of his tallit. There's also the the admonishment of Yeshua that says, if someone takes your shirt, give them your cloak as well. Well, Cloak is a translation from the Greek. They didn't have a word for tallit, but scholars are pretty much 100% sure that they were referring to a tallit. Now, when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., rabbinical Judaism took its place. The great rabbis kept Judaism alive, and many of the temple traditions were morphed into the daily practice of prayer, meditation on Torah, and communal worship. And men continued to cover their heads, not because the tops of their heads were an offense to God, as I've read, which I just think is downright silly, but because it's a recognition that God is above us and everywhere. It's an act of reverence. It's an act of recognition of the sovereign of the universe. Now, in time, of course, as the Jews spread across the Mediterranean, known as the Diaspora, and started to live within other cultures, they only wore their talit to worship or to temple. Okay, in other words, they didn't wear it as part of their common dress in these foreign lands. The kippah, or the yarmulke as we know it today, was worn instead, probably still the shape of David Feruza's hat. It was shown to express reverence. And it evolved slowly into the skull cap, as it's been called, that we know of today, pretty much by the early Middle Ages. Now, this naturally brings us to a discussion of the tallit. And the Shema that we recite here at Tikvot, believe it or not, it is a shortened version of the whole entire Shema. The whole Shema, you see, it includes the hero Israel that we're familiar with, the Ve'ahavta that, we're, that we are familiar with, but it also contains passages from the book of Numbers, chapter 15. Now, in this, chapter, in this chapter, Hashem commands Moses to tell the children of Israel that for all generations to come, they're to make for themselves a four-cornered garment with tzitzit, which is the Hebrew word for fringe, on all the corners. Within, within those fringes, there is to be a thread of tehlet, which is a blue dye that is extracted from a, a unique form of shellfish. You, you can see that in mine, okay? the threat of Techlit. Now, why blue? How many of you have ever been in a desert? How many of you have just been in a desert? Even if it's like one in New Mexico. Raise your hand. All right, now to those who did not raise your hand, how many of you have just been on a piece of farmland, okay, where all you could see for miles and miles going in all direction was just flat land? Raise your hand. Of good majority of us here. Okay, well, what happens? What happens is that if you look, eventually, the earth and the sky, they kind of meet, don't they, in that zenith. And you can't really tell where the earth ends and the sky begins. And your eyes are drawn upward to this dazzling, gorgeous blue especially at nighttime, you know, when there are no city lights and you can see the stars dazzling, incredible. You kind of get the, you know, emotion that you're just being enveloped, just hugged in eternity. Now, in fairness, there are some works of scholarship that say that this blue thread was also a way that the Israelites could identify one another as children of Israel, As certainly there were other cultures that might have worn tassels of different colors, but be that as it may. Eventually, this blue dye became less and less available. And the rabbis decided that it was perfectly alright to just have regular white fringes. Um, George, will you do me a favor and stand up, big guy? Look at George's tallit. He just has the white fringes, but he has blue stripes or black stripes on it. The rabbis decided that that was perfectly okay. And this is the talit that we're familiar with with today. But let's go further into the passage about what these fringes were actually for. Uh, There we go. Let the tzitzit be a sign for you to look at and recall all of the commandments of the Lord and observe them. Let's read that together. Let the tzitzit be a sign for you to look at and recall all of the commandments of the Lord and observe them. Here at Tikvot, we are so blessed that Hashem has put so strongly on Rabbi David's heart to remind us of the covenant, the overarching covenant that describes the very fabric of the universe. This covenant was established in Torah by Hashem and comes into full completion in the reality of Messiah Yeshua. Now, being 20th century Americans, we kind of do a double take hmm, at our individualism being challenged to obey anything, much less obey commandments. When was the last time you were at the wedding and obey was a part of the wedding vows? Not in America anymore. But brothers and sisters, we must be humble enough to remember that obeying the commandments is an act of devotion. It's an act of devotion to the covenant that God has made us his children. And therefore, it's an undertaking of gratitude. Every time I look at my wedding ring, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, every time I look at my wedding ring, I am am overcome with a sense of gratitude that the God of heaven graced me with such a spectacular gift from heaven that is Natalia Blankenship. I can't look at this ring without bursting into giddy, stupid smiles, both inside and out. Cada vez yo miro a mi anillo de matrimonio, Nari mi alma explota. Con amor del regalo, que tú eres mía. It's not like I see my ring and I'm like, oh gosh, I'm a married man now. <laughs> I've got to be like, ugh gainfully employed now, you know, I've actually got to be nice to her. I've actually got to have food and heat in the house. Oh gosh, what a drag. It's not like that at all. Not at all. I am grateful. I am grateful. I look at this and I think about how blessed I am. And it's the same that God was charging the children of Israel that he charges us. When we look at the tzitzit, we are reminded that we were bought and delivered and sealed into the covenant of holy communion with the God of the universe. This is why men don't wear tallits in the bathroom. This is why we don't ball them up and toss them on a, you know, something to hang them on. We fold them neatly and with reverence for what they symbolize to us. The tallit is not magical. The kippah is not magical. The Torah scrolls are not magical. These are, these are things. Okay? To believe that they're magical is the height of idolatry. The, the, the basic Reader's Digest version of idolatry is this, brothers and sisters. To ascribe supernatural powers into things. There's only one supernatural force in this universe, and that is Hashem. Hashem. And the children of Israel offended God over and over and over again by following the example of their pagan neighbors and ascribing supernatural powers into wooden or stone idols that were nothing but pieces of wood and stone. It's all through Torah. But what sacred objects like the Torah, what sacred objects like the kippah, like the Talit, like menorahs, what they do, as well, as well as sacred rituals, like saying Shabbat at home, saying Havdalah at home, going to a Passover Seder. What these sacred objects and rituals do for us, brothers and sisters, is that they remind us of heavenly realities. And therefore, they pitch us out of our own heads and into a com- con- contemplative awareness of the blessings That he has given us and is giving us through our worship, through our prayer. The third and last thing I have time to talk about, it seems, is the Jewish practice of blessing. Most of our prayers begin with the familiar statement, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments. And then, usually, who commands us, and then the particular blessing for the food, drink, bodily functions, sacred time in our calendar, etc., etc. The prayer mentions that we are sanctified. We are sanctified, which is commandments, which emphasizes directly what I was talking about just a little bit earlier, that we are sanctified within covenant but one may ask how do we bless God how do I bless God how can anyone bless the sovereign of the universe and even if I could why would the sovereign universe be interested in my blessing the root of for the word that we use for baruch. That bet, that resh, that kaf, from which we derive words such as baruch, and the command form of it, barihu as in et adonai hamivorach, right? Okay? This word actually means to kneel. To bend our knees and kneel. So what can I do to bless God? Not much, not much but I can bend my knees in exhausted adoration and praise of the heavenly perfection that he is. That's what I can give him. That's the least of what I can give him for giving me, out of his loving grace, the atoning blood of his son, our Messiah. That's the least of what I can give. And this leads me to the final thought I want to share. We're all familiar of the story in Yohanan 4 and John 4 of Yeshua meeting the woman at the well. Now, among other things, this woman asks Yeshua whether the worship of Hashem should be centralized in the Jerusalem temple or in a temple located in Samaria. And Yeshua answers, neither. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit, Ruach, and in truth, Emmet. As Jeremiah stated, the Torah, brothers and sisters, is written on our hearts. God does not need our rituals. Hashem gifted our rituals to to us because He knows that we need them. We need them to form community. We need them as a platform to stand humbly before the Eternal One in spirit and in truth and say, I am nothing but you. You are my everything. Jews have suffered through so many persecutions, upheavals, programs, and genocide. Yet we are still here. Not only did we survive, not only do we continue to survive, we thrive. And brothers and sisters, I assert before you this morning that more than we Jews have kept our holy tradition. holy traditions have kept us. They've kept us. Uh, Eric, I'm going to ask you to come up and give the ironic benediction and thank you for listening. Shabbat shalom.